นโมทัสสะปะกวัตโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะปะกวัตโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะปะกวัตโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีตอดีต
in this remote rural part of Thailand trying to adjust to the food and the climate and I couldn't speak the language. And But I had read some of Ajahn Tate's teachings and translation, I think, before I even got there. And, and he was the teacher of my preceptor at the time. My first ordination was in Thailand with Somnit Nyana Sangwon and Hopawon and and his, he had spent his time as a meditation monk with Ajahn Tate. And I thought, well, certainly if he was good enough for my preceptor, he was good enough for me. And so I went up there and I'm very glad I did. As I say, it was only a six-month period, but a very formative period. And one for which I shall be eternally indebted. I'm very, very grateful. Now, of course, Ajahn Tate was... Um, very mature in his years as a as a monk and well into his seventies by then and and I wouldn't and couldn't really do justice in translating his teachings. However I am happy to mention some of the the points of his teachings that stayed with me. And the way he way he delivered the teachings meant that that they really went in. There was there was such a extraordinary simplicity to him, and yet also a profundity. He was he was very very gentle, and and he was as I say well into his seventies by then. He'd been diagnosed actually as having leukemia um, some years before I got there, and the hospital told him he had six months to live. And he said, "Well, I'll die back in my monastery." So he went back, and it seems he he. Um, paid close attention to the inner workings of things and he lived till well into his 90s. Um, however, the time I was with him, he was of limited energy physically and and we didn't see that much of him, but I did have the good fortune of being able to go and see him and talk about practice whenever I needed to. And I did need to. I, and that first six months was very testing time. The first occasion of meeting with him, he was very keen to hear um, what our understanding of practice was. There was another Western monk with me at the time. The two of us went up together. and Since we were going to be living in his monastery for the, at least the period of the Rains Retreat, he wanted to know what our understanding of practice was and so he called us up to his kuti and more or less interviewed us and told him what we thought of practice. And Then he spoke for a while and what I can remember of that occasion of meeting with him and what stayed with me as being so significant then and now was he simply said through the translator, he simply said, your task in practice is to realize the heart and the activity of the heart. To learn to tell the difference. He said, that's it, it's that simple. And saying that, I can almost hear him saying it. He had a very high-pitched high voice and very 
very gentle but yet very, very strong and deep and and so rich and clearly rich in experience and understanding. And I hadn't exper- expected him to say something so straightforward. I, I, I guess I'd expected something more complex and difficult to understand, but something within me when I heard that, I thought, yes, I, I, can, I can get that. I can relate to that. And so that was the, and is, the foundation of my meditation practice, my inquiry. How to observe inwardly how to direct attention so that we come to know intimately for ourselves that which is the heart and that which is the activity of the heart. Or this word jitta, the words he used was jitta and agan kong jit. Jitta is the heart or the mind and Argan Kong Jit entire the activity of the heart or mind. What was so valuable about that for me was I'd heard a lot of talk about developing jhanas, developing states of absorption and different stages of insight and levels of realization. And what he was pointing to was that what's important is not to be distracted by ideas of practice, experiences, sensations, mental impressions. Not to be distracted by these things, but to simply see them as all as the activity of the mind. This is all content. And the image that, that I'd already gathered about practice was was to see these as, as waves passing across the ocean. The ocean is the heart and the waves are the activities that we experience. Usually it's the case that we are caught up in the activity. And from time to time all of us get caught up in the activity. I get caught up in the activity. Get caught up in the waves, get caught up in the movements of mind, forgetting, losing perspective. But practice is very simply remembering perspective. Cultivating an awareness that sees the knowingness and that which is known. That which is known, the sensations, we can know the sensations in the body. We can know feelings, energetic movements, 
mental formations, ideas, impressions, concepts, memories, fantasies. These can all be known. They need to be known as <coughs> activity. If we don't know them as activity, what happens? We become the activity, we become caught up in the activity. There's a lovely saying they have in, in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, laugh but don't get lost in laughter, cry but don't get lost in crying. And that always appealed to me. The same could be said of think but don't get lost in thinking. Enjoy, but don't get lost in enjoyment. And sometimes people come across Buddhist teaching, Buddhist meditation, and have the idea that we're supposed to get rid of desire or make the mind empty. That peacefulness means peacefulness means getting rid of all the content of the mind. Thankfully, Arjun Tate didn't give me that teaching. I'm very, I'm eternally grateful that he didn't give me that teaching. And what you've got to do is empty your mind out. I would have failed at that. Eh? Mm. Sometimes it does appear that the mind is very open and spacious and there's very little happening. But that's not the point. Because in that state of openness and clarity, spaciousness, there's a vitality in it a pleasure that arises in that clarity and simplicity. If we're not properly prepared, not properly informed, then we can make the mistake of thinking this is it, this is the point, this good feeling is the point. Ajahn Tate was saying the good feeling is activity. We've got to know the activity in relationship to that in which the activity is taking place. What is it in which this activity is taking place? What is it that knows? So not just knowing the content, but cultivating an awareness that knows the knowing and that which is known. So that was a gift, uh, uh, the first gift I received from Ajahn Tate. And, uh, a precious gift, one that very much set me up for the practice that I was doing there. I was very enthusiastic as a passionate 23-year-old who'd had a little bit of pleasurable experience in meditation. I was really into getting somewhere in my practice, and so I did make a huge amount of effort. And Getting up in the morning, early in the morning, we would go out and have our arms around and come back, have the one meal, and I would sit and walk during the day and I would I had very few teachings in English but the few that I had I would study and take very seriously and reflect on and and almost no talking because the little talking I can do was with people whose language I couldn't speak. The other monk who was living there, the other Western monk who was living there, he was meditating on death and he didn't seem to want to pay much attention to me. As it happened, as the months went by I looked more and more like death 
And I think he found me an interesting object of contemplation rather than somebody to talk to. I didn't get on very well with the sticky rice and pickled fish and chilies. So I lost a lot of weight. Not to mention, of course, the anxiety of a war that was going on and the other things that were going on inside my mind. So there was a lot of talking going on, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of effort, real commitment. And we were stuck there. We couldn't leave anywhere. It'd leave for three months because it was the Wasa. As it is here now, the Wasa, we make a commitment to stay here. So I was really locked into this, and that added to the intensity. So anyway, during this retreat period, committed practice, I, there was some benefit from the effort that I was making and I can still recall very vividly a period, I think it might have been about halfway through the Vasa and just spontaneously one evening at evening chanting the, um, the clarity that that emerged spontaneously, just sitting there and puja and surrounded by the other monks. It wasn't sitting on my cushion and doing any special practice, just suddenly, spontaneously, there was this wonderful clarity and, and clear perspective on things like I'd never known before, and a, and a wonderful and utterly natural sense of well-being. Something that at the time I felt could never change, it was so natural. And I was so happy about it that I mentioned to one of the other monks after evening puja about this wonderful state of mind that suddenly appeared. And he said, oh, let's go and talk to Ajahn Tate about it. And, and we used to have this thing in the evening, we would go down after evening chanting and, and all of us, well, not all of us, maybe about eight or ten of us would get on him and massage him at the same time. And any of you have experienced Thai massage, it's gruesome. You, know, you stick your elbows, you get your elbow and you really dig in as deep as you can. And anyway, this would be every night. He'd go through this at 70, whatever he was, and they were very unrestrained. Anyway, this one evening we went down and he would chat while we were massaging him. And so we started chatting about what had happened for me. And, and he stopped the massage at the time, I recall, and, and that had never happened. And... He sat up and said, oh, I'd like to know more about this. And so we talked some more about it. And on that evening, he gave me what I would consider as the, the second uh, most helpful piece of advice I've ever received in practice. And he was talking about and what had happened and seemed to understand. I was getting a bit confused as I was trying to explain it through a translator and Anyway, what he, what, he, what he explained to me then was he said, well, this moment or these moments, this, this clarity, this mindfulness, this presence that you experience is good. From now on, what you have to do, your effort and practice now, is just to remember quicker. You have to remember quicker. I suppose if I'd heard him more clearly, I would have heard him say, well, you're going to forget. You're going to lose this clarity. You're going to lose this perspective. Don't dismiss it. 
Just make the effort to remember. And that's it. It's that simple, to remember quicker. Little by little, with effort, with consistent practice, as I'm sure many of you have realized that we can make a difference if we make the right kind of effort. Well, that's what he said, but actually it was about seven years before I really remembered what he said, because what happened after that was I fell into hell. This profound, amazing experience, at least as I experienced it that evening in chanting, was, was wonderful at the time, but it was immediately followed by horrendous, unpleasant mind states. It fell into the most terrible states of self-doubt. Possibly you've heard me speak about this before when I've talked about how important it is to really prepare ourselves properly for practice. And I hadn't long been off the hippie trail. I, would, I don't know. It was only a few months before that I was hitchhiking up through Indonesia and Malaysia and <coughs> arriving in Thailand and, and, and very quickly found myself with a shaven head and in robes and doing this intensive practice. And, Looking back, I can say I definitely wasn't properly prepared. However, what happened, happened, and thanks to Ajahn Tate's loving kindness and caring, consistent attention, I did survive these very unpleasant states. But as I say, it was about seven years before I got round to remembering what he'd really told me on that occasion and really valuing the teaching that he'd given me. And I do still value and I do encourage us all in making this effort to remember. Because sometimes when we forget, if we really forget, we can devalue what's happened beforehand and we can dismiss experiences that we've had, effort that we've made, insights that have arisen. Ajahn Chah used to give the image, he said, he said these moments of mindfulness, these moments of understanding, he said are like drips of water coming out of the tap. In the beginning it's drip, drip, drip. And there's big gaps between the drips. If we're heedless, during those big gaps, when we're spaced out and caught up in our thinking, caught up in the content of the mind, caught up in the sensations, caught up in the activity and the waves, and the dust, and last week I was talking about uh, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions, the uh, specks of dust floating through the empty space of awareness, uh, we get the dust caught in our eyes, even the gold dust, if we get it caught up in our eyes, it blinds us. And If we're not prepared properly and we don't understand practice, we can think that our moments of mindfulness were in, invalid. We can invalidate them. We can dismiss them. And that's a pity. So that's a helpful image from Ajahn Chah. The, the drip, drip. 
And he says, little by little, with effort, it's a drip, 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 and then drippity, drippity, drip. And, and then he says, then it's a shh, a stream. He says, you enter the stream. It's a stream of mindfulness. It's a continuity. It's the same moments. They're just uninterrupted. That's helpful. So when we forget, we forget. But the good news is that when we remember, that's it. And it really is important to remember that that's it. In formal meditation, sitting there doing what we do to gather our hearts and minds together and find ourselves settling into stillness. Maybe we find stillness and perspective and we remember. And then the mind wanders off. If only I hadn't done that. Why did they say that? past or the future my ticket for tomorrow how I got my ticket where did I put that ticket the future or sensations whatever we get caught up or we get lost the mind wanders attention wanders but then we remember because that's what we're committed to. That's what our heart is committed to, is to remembering. We remember, we come back, and that's it. That's good. But do we always let it be it? Or do we come in with some sort of judgment and say, oh, I shouldn't have forgotten. How long have I been meditating? My practice is hopeless. and We've forgotten it again. We've lost it again. So Ajahn Tate's advice was, all you've got to do is remember. All you've got to do is remember quicker. To come back quicker. That's all you've got to do. Add nothing. So I kept making effort during the swasa, and I was, I was, as I said, very diligent. But by this time I was in such a state of sometimes terror and despair and distress and thorough unpleasantness that I, uh, it was really just survival and at the end of the wasa I, I wasn't well at all and I, I decided I needed to go down to Bangkok and, and um, get away from the sticky rice and pickled fish and, and um, rest up a little bit and actually I ended up going to, ended up in hospital I, I wasn't very well at all and but the last time I went to see Ajahn Tate before I left, and it was many, many years, I think it was about another 15 or 16 years before I saw him again after that, the last bit of advice he gave me, which was, I recall, the third really significant and helpful thing he told me, was, with such kindness, but such informed kindness, he wasn't just being nice to me, he was so aware of the, of the nature of this path. As I was leaving, he, he said, be careful. 
that too I can still remember. Take care. So often in the meditation, in the evening, as we begin the meditation, I, I will start off by guiding us together into our inner settling by saying carefully, carefully paying attention I think carefulness is actually another word for mindfulness. I think we could substitute in many cases talking or reading or listening to the teachings that the Buddha gave and the great teachers have given us. And I think we could just simply substitute the word mindfulness with the word carefulness. taking care. In the condition that I was in on on that occasion, it was just what was needed because I was so unhappy that I, I could very easily have been unkind or heedless. You know what it's like when you get a little miserable, you start blaming and thinking, well, somebody's done something wrong. You know, if we, it's very difficult to feel unhappy without feeling like somebody's done something wrong. Or at least that's how I find it. I don't know about you, but to feel really unhappy and not to feel like something's going wrong is very difficult. In terms of reality, if we're feeling unhappy, we're just unhappy. Unhappiness is just so. Unhappiness is. If we're not careful, we can say something's going wrong. And it really doesn't help to say that, does it? But we say it inwardly or even outwardly. That's, of course, a lot of what the media is about. The outflowing of the consequences of having made this mistake inwardly. At first we misperceive our unhappiness or our sadness or our suffering, whatever it is, as being something wrong. It's not just so. It's not just disappointment. It's not just fear. 
we don't have the space to receive it as it is, feel it, acknowledge it, allow it. We don't have the perspective, we don't have the knowingness to see it as content and awareness. Because we don't have that perspective, we struggle to do something about it, to deal with it in some way. One of the heedless ways of dealing with unpleasantness is to say, something's gone wrong, somebody's fault. If it's not mine, it's somebody else's. And that is so consistent, consistently the case. This wrong-making, what you've heard me refer to as the compulsive judging mind, It shouldn't be this way. Well, somehow, Ajahn Tate's parting gift to me, be careful, alerted me to that. At least intuitively, if not conceptually. It was a gift. It was his offering, his parting gift to me as I left that monastery and went off down to Bangkok. The fourth teaching of Ajahn Tate's that I can recall, and I do, I see these four things as, as really significant, these four points in, in my training as a monk. The fourth teaching came from Ajahn Tate when I went to see him not long before he died. Once I went to Bangkok, I... I um, basically I was too scared to go back to Wat Hingmat Pang, which is where Ajahn Tate lived. And by that time, Ajahn Chah had started up a branch monastery where Westerners were living. That's where Ajahn Sumaita was living in the first year. And I met Ajahn Sumaita and some other Western monks in Bangkok. And and Ajahn Sumaita compassionately pointed out and said, "We speak English," and I wanted to talk. It's difficult not to be able to talk and not be able to eat. So I actually didn't go back to Ajahn Tate's monastery um, after I left. I joined Ajahn Chah's community and certainly for the, the five years that I lived there I benefited enormously. And then I came to live in England and then about ten years later I, I had a chance to go back and visit and I was visiting with another teacher in the northeast, Ajahn Ban, and it turned out that his monastery was not far from a very well-known mountain monastery in some very dense forest called Wat Tamkam, which is where another very famous, highly respected disciple of Ajahn Man used to live, Ajahn Fan. Ajahn Fan had spent a lot of time in Wat Tamkam, well, as it happened, I heard while I was visiting Ajahn Ban that this monastery, which wasn't so far away, had Ajahn Tate staying in it. The weather was very good there and Ajahn Tate had fallen very ill and was recuperating there. He'd gone there to recuperate 
and he found it so agreeable that actually he stayed there and he stayed there for a very long time. It was very peaceful. Well, it was very peaceful, but then the Prime Minister of Thailand, was it the Prime Minister or was it the Minister of Transport? I don't remember whether it was the Minister of Transport or the Prime Minister. He took some teachings from Ajahn Tate and he was so inspired that he got them to build a road up the mountain. And so there's this four-lane highway tarmac going up this mountain so everybody could go and pay their respects to Ajahn Tate, which meant it wasn't quite so quiet after that. But it meant I was able to get there. And I was very pleased, very grateful, um, very moved to have a chance to see my first teacher again. Very moved indeed. He was very, very old and very frail in his 90s by then. Of course I wanted him to remember me, and of course he didn't. Um, but that was all right, just to be able to sit at his feet and to look at him, to gaze at him, and to remember the, the good fortune, the great blessing of having been able to live with him and, and his kindness and his attention for the first period in which I struggled so badly. And he, there was just a group of us of Western monks from Wat Nana Chat, and he agreed to uh, spend some time with us <coughs> and listen to our questions, <coughs> which was very kind of him, because he really was very old and very feeble. However, there was one comment he made during that time in response to which question I don't remember, but his comment, his reply did stay with me and does stay with me, and it is very much a part of my practice these days. And And it was like at the end of this life, in his 90s, he'd been a monk since, well, he'd been a novice monk and he was very early, I don't know, when he ordained as a novice, maybe 13 or something, and spent his whole life as a monk since then, and he was 90. And like that, one of the last comments he made was he said, Buddhism? You want a definition about Buddhism? Buddhism is one pointedness of mind. There's a lot that's said about Buddhism, a lot written about it. I take it as a, a very precious gift that such a great being would give such a clear and simple, practical presentation of this path, of this way. For those who don't practice meditation or haven't yet realized sufficient one-pointedness of heart and mind, and it may in fact not be correct to say one-pointedness of mind, it, it might be more correct to say one-pointedness of heart. And those words definitely have different connotations for us in, in our language. However, jitta in Pali, or Jit in Thai. Maybe we can say the heart-mind. One pointedness of heart and mind, if we haven't yet known how to abide 
clearly, consciously, mindfully in a state of one-pointedness, then perhaps Ajahn Tate's definition of Buddhism doesn't make sense. I would understand if it didn't make sense. But if we do have an appreciation of one-pointedness, to even a reasonable degree, then we know that a mind that is distracted and divided, fragmented, is a mind that's confused and misperceives that well-being, the natural well-being that we feel when there is well one-pointedness, the natural clarity is obstructed. Probably most of us went through years of our early life being chronically obstructed. I certainly did. Trying to sort out the right philosophy, the right political statement, the right lifestyle, the right type of relationship, the right social arrangement, so that I would feel good about life. Until during my first meditation retreat, focusing attention on the breath during sitting meditation, inhibiting the tendency to follow distractions, concentrating during walking meditation, not talking, giving up the distractions of the senses and eating in the evening, music, sexuality, simple commitment for a week to modesty and focusing of attention and discovering that is uncovering the goodness that's already there. Up until that point, yes, I, I thought I had to do something or take something imbibe something to feel good. But when we discover or when we uncover the goodness of the heart itself, when it's still, when it's calm, when it's peaceful, when it's clear, when this is discovered, then our relationship with the world is changed. The world is still a world. Yes, there's still pleasure and pain and intense and mediocre. Yes, there's still injustice and struggles and disappointments and joys and celebration and delight and happiness. But when we have a, an ability to see with clarity, with perspective, that all of this comes and goes through awareness, through the mind, through the heart, 
all of it. All experience happens. It comes and goes, it arises and ceases. When we have that perspective, then we don't invest in any experience in particular. We invest in the understanding of the nature of experience. So the fourth point of Ajahn Tate's teaching, for which I'm eternally grateful and happy to reflect on today with you, is what's really worth developing is not a sophisticated understanding of the theory of Buddhist practice or lots of retreat experiences, lots of insights, but an appreciation of how to be so that we can abide more often, more regularly, more frequently, more easily with one-pointedness of heart and mind. Understanding that it's in this state that we can see clearly this afternoon, Father Lawrence Freeman came to visit. He'd been leading a Christian meditation retreat over near Hexham and it was such a delight to talk with another contemplative. Yes, he's a Christian monk, but meditation is meditation. You know, the language of the heart is the language of the heart. It doesn't matter whether it's you know a Christian who's practicing meditation, or a Jew who's practicing meditation, or a Muslim, or or an atheist, or somebody old, or young, or male, or female, or, uh, speaks English, or Thai, or German, or Russian, or Latvian, or any other language. The language of the heart is the language of the heart. And if we can appreciate the skills that support us in cultivating one-pointedness of heart and mind, then we become adept at reading that language. And surely that's the solution, that's, that's the point. Last week I was speaking about the value of mindfulness and I mentioned how I could understand that people might question you, know, what's the point of doing all this when you know there's you know George Bush is talking about having a war with Iraq and or this week they you know there's there's more talk about it and there's there's fox hunting on people's minds and there's all these really important things going on. You know, two hundred thousand people converging on London to protest against Stopping fox hunting yeah. and other such incredibly important things. Yeah. There are 
apparently important things going on in the world, dramatic things going on in the world. But there's always been dramatic things going on in the world, and there always will be dramatic things going on in the world. What the Buddha encouraged was not getting caught up in the drama. See, that's, that's the activity of the world. It's not that we don't care. It's that if we really want to make a difference, if we really want to make a difference, if we really want to help, then our effort's got to come from a place of clarity, of right understanding, not of confusion. So certainly I can say that these, these four points of teaching that I received from Ajahn Tate have been a great gift and something that I shall always value and I'm very happy to contemplate them with you this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.